Thank you for listening in to the Cornerstone Baptist Church podcast. Our current sermon series is from the book of 1 Corinthians. For more information, visit our website at cumberlandcornerstone.org. 1 Corinthians 15. We come to the, the message that we looked at last week here at 8.15 and, and just really feel that this is an important place where we live. Uh, you know, some messages are doctrinal and they're very, very important. Uh, other messages are more practical or more uh, application-oriented. And this one kind of combines the two. And I really uh, uh, just feel that it's important for us to hear the, this message again uh, uh, from the, the word, not necessarily the message that I have. But follow along as we begin in verse 29 and go through verse 34 as we think about the fact that resurrection does impact our lifestyle. For those of you who take notes, I changed the notes a little bit. Uh, mainly the headings, uh, kind of worked through them and, and really thought a different way this week. But it says, otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead? If the dead do not rise at all, why then are they baptized for the dead? And why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. Awake to righteousness and do not sin. For some do not have the knowledge of God, and I speak this to your shame. You know, one of the things that we have to understand if we're going to live a life that is pleasing to God is this. The truths of Scripture, the doctrines of Scripture are not just there for theory. They're not just there for religious debates. They're not just there so theologians can, you know, argue about them or study them or plumb the depths of them. Uh, they are not also irrelevant to us in our lives today. And that's one of the things I think I hear more than anything from people in church today is, uh, or, or maybe people who are fringe churchgoers or family members or whatever, is that this book is no longer relevant for us today. All right, it, it's, it's an old book and I have shared that with you, you know, had someone in our own family not immediate family, but in our own family say, you know, why, why do I want to listen to that book? It's 2,000 years old. It's not relevant for me today. And I think that's prevalent in our, our, our society today. And we need to understand as God's people that this book is very relative to us today. That, that this is not just theory, that the truths that Scripture present to us need to be applied to our lives and we need to apply them daily. We need to know what we believe. You see, it's not just enough to say what we believe, and it's not just what we say that we believe that is important. Instead, the important thing is, do I live out what I say I believe? You know, as you go back to work in the, the community uh, today and tomorrow, uh, you claim to be a Christian. And, and perhaps you've even shared that with your, your, your uh, workmates or whatever and the schoolmates and, and the people in your neighborhood know that. But do you live out what you say you believe? You know, is, is it clear that I'm not just saying this and then something else, uh, you know, proves me to be otherwise? And as I thought about that, I thought of an illustration 
that I probably have shared with you before, but, but, and maybe it doesn't really apply, but I, I kind of thought it gave us some thoughts about that. One of my best friends, in fact, probably my best friend uh, as I was growing up in Ohio, we moved to Ohio in 1970, and uh, I was in the sixth grade. And by the end of that first day of school, I had met this, this uh, friend of mine, and we became best friends from that day on. And his dad was a vice president of Ohio State. And uh, so, you know, I've told many stories about him and, and uh, you know, hearing about Woody Hayes' firing or whatever. And I think I've told you this, but he decided to attend college at Michigan. Now think about that. You may be dismissed. <laughs> yeah. Here is the vice president of Ohio State's son going to Michigan. And he bought some Michigan clothes and he went to the, the football games and, and he, you know, claimed to be, you know, to his friends up there, yeah, yeah, I, I'm a Michigan fan. And on the outside he was saying, this is what I believe, if you will. And then the Ohio State-Michigan game came along. And he was sitting in the student section of the Ohio State, at the Ohio State-Michigan game in Michigan Stadium with a Michigan shirt on saying that he was rooting for Michigan. And in the middle of the game, Michigan fumbled and Ohio State recovered it. It was a big play of the game. And he stood up and went, yes! <laughs> you know? He said one thing, but what happened? In his heart, it was something totally different. You know, I, in a strange way, that's what I want to try to get across to you today. Right doctrine is inseparably co co connected to righteous living. When we truly believe the truths of Scripture, it's going to be demonstrated by the way we conduct ourselves, the way that we live. You see, it's not just enough, folks, for me and you to go out there and say, I'm a believer. I stand for the truths of Scripture. But then when life gets tough, or when something occurs, are we standing up and showing something totally different? That we don't necessarily live what we say we believe. You see, in our study, we have seen that the, the resurrection is an essential doctrine of the faith. And it's one, obviously, that the church of Corinth was struggling a little bit with. And maybe you're struggling with it, maybe you're not. But let, let's think of doctrine in general. But the resurrection is an essential doctrine. If there is no resurrection, then Christ did not rise. And if Christ did not rise, you know, we will not rise. And if Christ did not rise, his death did not accomplish what it was supposed to accomplish, and we are still lost in our sin. But the fact of the matter is, Paul says, Christ has risen. And by his resurrection, our resurrection then is guaranteed. The fact that Christ has arisen assures that the ultimate victory over sin has been accomplished and God's plan of redemption is complete with the resurrection. In this passage before us this morning, it is the close of the first half of the chapter, if you will. And in these verses, Paul brings this truth of the resurrection to bear on how does it impact your daily life? 
As you go to school tomorrow, as you go to work tomorrow, as you go back to the, your home today, how does the truth of the resurrection, how does what you say you believe impact the way you live? See, the hope of the resurrection is the motivation for our very distinct Christian lifestyle. You know, in fact, our lifestyle is not even understandable except in the light of the resurrection and in what Christ has done for us. In the light of eternity. What is Paul going to say later in the chapter? And we'll see it as we get to the end. If the resurrection is not true, then eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow you die. And there's nothing else there. So let's dig into this uh, for a second time for those of you that were here last week. And let's think about, first of all, the resurrection is our motivation for witnessing. The, the resurrection is our motivation for witnessing. And uh, we talked last week about verse 29, one of the more difficult verses in Scripture uh, to, to understand and, and to uh, interpret. And it says this, Otherwise, what will they do who are baptized for the dead if the dead do not rise at all? Why then are they baptized for the dead? And again, this, as I said, is one of the most difficult verses in all of Scripture uh, to, to explain. And actually, there are a number of very possible interpretations. And you read in numerous commentaries, you might come up with, you know, five different very plausible explanations of this verse. And one of the things I told you last week is when you come to a difficult passage of Scripture, we, we need to really look at what is the grammar saying in the verse? What is the writer saying in the verse? What is the context that he's saying? And then also compare it with other Scripture. And as you compare it with other Scripture, we can maybe not say dogmatically, I know exactly what this verse is saying. But as I compare it with other Scripture, I can dogmatically say, I know what this verse is not saying. And what this verse is not teaching is that, you know, that, that people can be baptized for those who, have been, those who have died and we can help them in some way get to heaven even though they're dead or help them some way spiritually. Uh, that is taught in the, the Mormon church, for, one, for example, that, that you can be baptized for a dead person and you can send them on up to heaven. And, may, and maybe others have that, those thoughts as well. But, but that is not at all what this verse is teaching. This verse is not teaching that believers can be baptized on, on behalf of those who have died. So as to benefit them in some way. Salvation is by personal faith in Jesus Christ. That is the repeated teaching of both Old Testament and New Testament. The only way that you and I can ever come to God is by personal faith in Christ. Baptism does not save me, does it? No, please answer that no. Uh, baptism does not, I shouldn't give you a chance to answer that. Uh, no, I know you would answer it correctly. Baptism cannot save me, so how could it possibly save someone who is dead? Paul is not teaching that. What is he teaching then? In that phrase, baptized for the dead, uh, the, the key word maybe is the, the word for, if you will. And the word for means in place of or instead of. So it's not that they are being baptized on behalf of those who have died. 
So, uh, you know, or, or for the benefit of the dead, they are being baptized, Paul says, in some way, shape, or form instead of or in place of those who have died. And, and really, the picture that Paul seems to be painting for us is this. If Christ did not rise from the dead, if he didn't conquer sin and death and hell for us, then those believers who have died have died with a false hope of resurrection, have died with a false hope of eternity, and really they have perished. They're, they're lost. So if those who have already died in the hope of the resurrection, if they have found out that that hope is a false hope because there is no resurrection, there is no eternity, then why in the world would we continue to baptize other people to take their place, to, to be in their, their stead? You know, if, if the dead do not rise, it's crazy to continue to baptize new believers to take their place in the hope of a resurrection that, that isn't real. You know, to some degree, I think that's what Paul's trying to teach us here. If there's no resurrection, think about it this way. Why would we bother to witness? Why would I bother to share my faith and try to win other people to Christ if, if all I am offering them is an empty hope? You know, when those folks come knocking at your door, and want to share something with you about what they believe. You know, it's an empty hope. It's a false hope. Why do I want to believe that? And why do I, if what I believe, if what I believe the Bible says is not true, if there is no resurrection, then, then Christ has not won the victory for sin over, uh, for us. We are still lost in our sin. Why am I going to go out and try to get somebody else to believe that? What would be the point? But Paul says the resurrection is true. And every person will one day be resurrected. We looked at that Wednesday night. Some are going to experience the joy of eternal life. Others are going to experience the pain of judgment and eternity in hell. See, the point is, every one of us will be resurrected. Everyone, whether you want to believe it or whether you don't want to believe it, the Bible clearly teaches us every person who has ever lived will be resurrected. Some will be resurrected to eternity in heaven because they put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Others will experience eternity in hell. But every one of us will be resurrected. This should be our motivation for witnessing. The resurrection should be our motivation. Eternity should be our motivation for witnessing. Look at the second thing, though. The motivation for suffering. Paul then uh, begins to share some of his own life, his own personal testimony, as he says, if the resurrection is not true, if the resurrection is not a reality, if indeed eternity is a false hope, if my life ends in the grave at death, like so many people believe, if the here and now is all that we have, then I've been a fool to expose myself to the dangers of this world. 
Look, look what he says in verse 30. Why do I, we stand in jeopardy every hour? Why am I putting my life in jeopardy? I affirm by the boasting in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. If in the manner of men I have fought with the beast at Ephesus, what advantage is it to me? If the dead do not rise, let us eat, drink, eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Paul says, today, if the resurrection isn't true, if the gospel's not true, if this whole thing is a, is a sham, why in the world would I put my life in jeopardy day after day? It makes no sense. If this life is all there is, if there's no resurrection, if there's no eternal life, why in the world is Paul and other believers putting their lives in jeopardy? Paul was in constant jeopardy from his enemies. And on more than one occasion, he was in the danger of death. So what would be the point of suffering? What is the point of enduring persecution if the resurrection were not true? For these folks, within a few years, Nero is going to become the, the emperor. And you think life was bad here when Nero became the emperor. Christians were, were lit up as torches to light Nero's gardens. Christians were, were put in animal skins and thrown to the wild dogs. Christians were taken into the arena and made to, be fight, made to fight with lions. It would be foolish to live in constant jeopardy if the resurrection and ultimately the gospel were not true. Let's put it in our world. You know, we're, we're certainly living in a world that is, is ridiculing Christianity. We're certainly living in a world where Christians are becoming more and more, you know, this fringe over here on the side that needs to shut up, you know. Why, let me ask you a question, why would we stand up and fight that? Why would I be willing to, to say, you know, I'm one of those Christians and I believe the Bible is God's word and be ridiculed by the world? Why would I do that if it's all fake, if it's all false? And that's what Paul is saying here. Why am I putting myself in jeopardy if the resurrection never happened? Look at verse 32. If in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, whether that was a play on words, whether he truly had fought with beasts or whether he was just talking about the, the crazy people of Ephesus, what it doesn't really matter. He says, what advantage is it to me if the dead do not rise? Let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Here again, he, he points out the absurdity of risking his life for the cause of Christ if there's no resurrection. You know, Paul constantly faced death during his life. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, where Paul, you know, it says, uh, why am I continuing to share this? I was shipwrecked, I was beaten, I was stoned, all those things for the cause of Christ. If there's no resurrection of the believing dead, if this is all there is, then suffering and dying for the cause of Christ would be absolutely what? foolish it'd be foolish if the resurrection is not true then, then 
You know, that the philosophy of life of the Epicureans is, is the philosophy we, we, all, we all ought to buy into. If the gospel is not true, folks, if the resurrection never occurred, we are of all men most pitied, pitied, but we ought to adopt the philosophy of the world that says, let's eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. You might as well get all you can here. You might as well indulge yourself. You see, that's the world's view, isn't it? That, that's the view of the people around us. Get all you can in this life because death ends it all. Grab all you can get. Grab all the gusto you can. You know, you deserve it. Do all you can do. You know, if we die only to remain dead in the grave and there's no eternity, then giving in to every desire makes perfect sense. That's what Paul says in verse 32. <laughs> Why are we doing this? Why are we living? Why, why am I depriving myself of my desires? Why, why am I living for Christ? If, if none of this is true. But you see, Paul's testimony was a, con Paul's lifestyle, excuse me, was a constant testimony to the fact the resurrection was a, a reality to him. You know, last week, and we're not going to take the time to do that this morning, but in Hebrews chapter 11, remember Moses. Moses was willing to give up the treasures of Egypt. He was willing to give up everything the world had to offer because he wanted to be counted with God. Abraham was willing to live in a tent. He was willing to be a pilgrim wandering around from place to place. Because he was looking for a city whose builder and maker was God. He was following God. See, the only reason those men, the only reason that Paul, and the only reason that all believers are willing to make such a choice is because of the hope of the resurrection. Because of the gospel. Because of eternity. And that brings us to our last thought. The resurrection is my motivation to witness, to share the gospel with others. The resurrection is my motivation to, to even suffer at the hands of the world around me. But in the last two verses, this is where it gets really practical to us. The resurrection is also the motivation for you and I to live a, a life of holiness, a life of personal holiness. It, Paul is really concerned about these people. This whole book, has, this whole letter has demonstrated his concern for where they are in their, their Christian walk. And he closes this, this part with a very strong uh, er, appeal to, the, to, to the, the folks at Corinth to get yourself together. Get your act together. And he says to them in verse 33, don't be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to allow themselves to be, you know, duped by man's philosophy, man's here and now philosophy. He, he doesn't want them to buy into the world's philosophy. 
And, and notice what he says, a very strong statement here in verse 33. Evil company corrupts good habits. I think I mentioned to you last week, my parents loved this verse. You know, my, they, they, they maybe uh, paraphrased it, but it was basically the, in our house and in our life, my life, it was be careful who you hang out with. Because who you hang out with ultimately is going to influence you. You know, uh, I can remember in, in youth group um, talking about dating. And, uh, you know, you've probably heard this if you're old like me, maybe heard this illustration. But, you know, the, the, the fact that we weren't supposed to date unsafe people. You know, and, and we all often called it missionary dating. You know, I'm going to go date them and I'm going to win them for Christ. And, uh, and I can remember my youth leader saying, well, let me demonstrate how that's going to work. And he called one of the kids up front and he, he I, I should make Bill do it, but I won't. <laughs> he says, stand on that chair right there. He said, now what's easier, for you to pull me up on the chair or for me to pull you down from that chair? He said, that's what it's like to hang out with the world. That's what it's like to hang out with. It's, it's going to be far easier for the world to pull you down to their level than for you to pull the world up to your level, their level. And Paul here says, evil company corrupts. Psalm 1 warns us about that. Proverbs 13 warns about it. All too often, folks, you and I are influenced by the world around us. Maybe it's not even by the people, it's by the things that we see, by the things that we watch, by the things that we read, by the things that we do. See, the Corinthians were allowing the pagan philosophy of the world around them, of their culture, to influence their knowledge of the truth of God. They were allowing their philosophy, the philosophy of the world around them to, to, to influence them and to corrupt them. And one reason that this is so important is that what we believe is soon translated into how we live. It's kind of how, where we started this morning, into our daily conduct. What you believe, and that's why it is essential for us to know this book and to believe this book and to, to be committed to this book, because what I believe will ultimately be translated into how I live. In fact, the Corinthians were undoubtedly reflecting the, 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 the doctrinal problems they were having in the church uh, because we saw as we studied through the book of 1 Corinthians, their morals were out of control. Their lifestyle was out of control. They were involved in immorality that the world itself wasn't even involved in. There was a lack of self-discipline in the church. They're, they were indulging themselves. They were, you know, taking one another to court. They were wanting this and wanting that. All of that was evidence that they had bought into the pagan philosophy of the here and now world. And that here and now world had gotten to them. And it was influencing how they lived their daily lives, even though they claimed to be believers. And I got to tell you, we face the same problem today. We face the same problem in our world today. 
You cannot continue to take in the world's philosophy and not have it affect your lifestyle. It can't be done. It cannot be done. And we within the church are allowing the world to influence us, I, I fear, instead of us influencing the world. And the people that we keep company with today gives evidence as to whether the world's philosophy is impacting us. Who are you, who are you more comfortable with? Who are you more comfortable spending time with? The people of the world or the people of God? Where are your priorities? Where is your value system? How about your self-discipline? What about your commitment to the cause of Christ? You know, we often talk about church. And again, I have said this to you many, many times. I understand that, that, you know, every time I grew up and every time the doors were open, I had to be there. But I was the pastor's kid. And I'm the, I do not subscribe to that philosophy at all. But what I will tell you is this. Church attendance, to some degree, demonstrates where you're at in your commitment to Christ. Because if everything else comes first, where are your priorities at? If we're living for the here and now, that's going to be demonstrated by the things I do in my life. Is it the world that's most important to me, or is it my relationship to Christ? But Pastor Dave, if I do this, I'll miss out on all these other things. Okay, fine. Let me ask you. When you stand before the Lord in eternity, what's going to be more important? That I did these things over here that gave me so much pleasure in this world or that I live for him? You know, are we really convinced that eternity is the only reality? Are we really convinced that living for Christ here and now, taking up the cross daily, following him is the most important thing? Are we really convinced of that? Do we really believe what Paul believed concerning the resurrection, concerning eternity? Paul said it's the only thing worth living for. Do I really believe that? I mean, I have to ask myself that question. Do I really believe that? Because there's so many other things that are so important to us. But I think the point of this passage is this. People who think wrongly, people who don't know Scripture, people who claim to know Scripture, but they don't live it out, they act wrongly because wrong conduct comes out of wrong thinking. Comes from wrong beliefs. Comes from wrong standards. It is impossible to associate regularly with evil people, with worldly people. It is impossible to associate regularly with them without being contaminated both by their ideas and their habits. It's impossible. You're not going to pull them up. They're going to pull you down. And notice what Paul says, and we've got to close. 
Verse 34, wake up. I could say that to you this morning right now. Wake up. You know, wake up. The word awake means to return to one's senses out of drunkenness. Really to become sober. And the thought that Paul is sharing with these folks is this. You've become drunk with the world's philosophy. You've become intoxicated with the world. You, you are in a drunken stupor that has affected your Christian conduct. And you need to wake up. You need to do what is right. You need to come to your senses. You need to do what you ought to be doing as believers. And, and can I say, for some of us here today, we need to wake up. We need to wake up. Oh, we're in church, but, you know, if we were really honest about our lifestyle, if we were really honest about our priorities, if we were really honest about our commitment, we need to wake up. We need to make, wake up. And notice what Paul adds to the verse. Awake to righteousness, and do not sin. Why does he say that? Because it is inevitable, once again, that false doctrine will end up leading to sinful life. If I'm not going to take a stand that this is God's word and I'm going to do what God says, you're going to end up in sin. I can just tell you that right now. You're going to end up in sin. You see, what we believe, or maybe when we really believe something, it's going to impact the way we live. My friend Fritz, down deep in his heart, was an Ohio State fan. He said to everybody around him, I, I root for Michigan. But when the rubber met, met the road, what happened? <laughs> You see, it's time for the Corinthians and it's time for us at Cornerstone to wake up, clean up. Because the Christian life, the Christian here who was not living a life that, that, that they should have been living. And a Christian who is compromising with the world has totally, listen to me, if you're compromising with the world, you've totally lost your witness to the world. You've got nothing to share with them. And Paul gets to the real problem at the end of the verse when he says, you do not have the knowledge of God. And that's the problem in our world today. That's the problem in the, ch the church today. There's an ignorance of what God says. There's an ignorance of God. In the church of Corinth, Paul says, you have no knowledge of God. You have a spiritual problem. You're maintaining an ignorance of God's truth, even though I gave it to you. I was there for three years, Paul says. I taught you the word of God, but you're ignorant of it. And what does he say at the end of the verse? That's shameful. That's shameful. You have ignored God's truth, and you become drunk with man's philosophy, and the result is sinful behavior. Shame on you. It's shameful to be ignorant of God's truth. When God has clearly revealed to us his word. Here's what I say. These people have been taught the truth. But they willfully ignored the truth. 
In fact, the, the, the idea there is they are stubbornly refusing to accept what they knew was the truth. What is the truth? Christ conquered death for every man. Resurrection and eternal life is a certainty in Christ. And when that truth really grips your heart, folks, it will have a profound impact on how you live. And it will impact the level of your commitment to him. Of that I can guarantee you. How sad and how shameful it is that Christians today, like the Corinthians, are living for the here and now. As though this world is all there is. I better get all I can get. Oh, I can't miss this opportunity. My kids can't miss that opportunity. This can't have. You see, some people claim to have faith in Christ. They claim to be followers of Christ. But their, their lifestyle betrays that profession. We say we love the Lord. We say we're committed to him. And he might say to us, prove it. Prove it. And we prove it how? By the way we live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, again, this reminder from this passage of Scripture. May the resurrection truly, may the gospel truly impact our lives. Lord, we all have to admit that sometimes our priorities get out of whack. Sometimes our commitment is not what it ought to be. Sometimes we are setting our value system by the things of the world and not by the things of eternity. Lord, help us to wake up. Help us to realize that one day we're going to stand before you and at that point in time, it won't matter how big my bank account is. It won't matter how many activities I was involved in. It won't matter whether I had the corner office. All that's going to matter is what did I do for Christ? Lord, I pray that today, perhaps someone here would wake up and realize their need to be totally committed to you. And Lord, I also am sure that there could be some here today that don't even know Christ as their Savior. Lord, may you open their eyes today for that need. Lord, if there are decisions we need to make, Lord, may we do so today. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more information on our church located in Cumberland, Maryland, please go to cumberlandcornerstone.org.